Okay, we're going to be reading from the book of Daniel, um, but before I start, I'd like to set a little bit of the scene for those of you who aren't really um, aware of uh, when this book was set. Um, We've already heard from Dan's preaching recently about how God had promised to raise up the Babylonians to punish the Judeans because they'd uh, they'd gone away from God and they'd they'd just been rebelling and sinning um, and God had promised that he was going to bring the Babylonians to remove them to exile. Now, God's chosen tool for that task was the king of Babylon, Nebuchadnezzar. For a long while leading up to this time, uh, the Assyrians had dominated the Near East And Nebuchadnezzar and his father then led a a rebellion against the Assyrians and ended up taking over their empire. Um, So Nebuchadnezzar then went to claim his new territory, part of which was uh, Judea. So it's within this context that the book of Daniel starts with um, Nebuchadnezzar, probably still as crown prince of Babylon, so he was the heir to the throne, the sort of uh, Prince Charles figure, but a bit more aggressive perhaps (laughs) and uh, he he was um, besieging Jerusalem uh, we're told at the start and uh, while he was still there in the middle of it his father the king died and so Nebuchadnezzar had to rush back to Babylon to be crowned king and somewhere amongst this he took back a load of hostages with him from Jerusalem some of the sort of choice men uh, and some of those that were the most promising uh, one of those was Daniel and some of, uh, some of his friends that, w- that we meet at other points in Daniel. Um, so uh, these guys were supposed to be educated in Babylonian ways and they were going to stand before the king, which means they uh, would kind of be his counsellors and, uh, and serve in the court. So over the next uh, 20 years or so, and after a few more rebellions, Nebuchadnezzar had, had enough of the Judeans really and he just finally subdued Judah and transported most of its population into exile. We fast forward another 20 years, and uh, Nebuchadnezzar's nearing the end of his life, a pretty successful one by worldly standards, but as they say, it ain't over till the fat lady sinks, as we're about to find out. Um, so if you turn to Daniel 4, it's quite a, uh, it's, we'll read from verse 24, but I'll fill you in on the first part because it's quite a long passage. I should uh, really, I told myself I was going to put a timer on, so... I, I'm told that people, when they first preach, uh, tend to be a bit long, so I'll try and keep a check on myself. <laughs> oh, yes, sorry, Joe. It is the ESV. So we have got some Bibles, have we? Somewhere? No. We've got some NIV Bibles. I don't know whether that will confuse you or not. Um, the story is essentially the same. But while, if you would like a Bible, um, if you can put your hand up now and... Looks like Dan is going to come and give you one. So while he's doing that, I'll fill you in on the rest of the story. So uh, it starts with Nebuchadnezzar seeing a dream that makes him rather afraid. He sees a tree that grows strong and reaches to heaven and it provides fruit and shade for all the animals. But then he sees a watcher come down from heaven and command that the tree be chopped down and just left, uh, leaving only the stump. It said that to become like the animals, living in the grass, being wet with dew, and having a mind like the animals, and this is to go on for a set time, the watcher says that the purpose of this is that the living may know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will and sets over it the lowliest of men. 
being thoroughly confused and worried by this dream, Nebuchadnezzar calls in all his wise men, astrologers and dream interpreters and the like, but they can't interpret it. So finally he calls in Daniel, by, who by this point is actually chief of his wise men, and Daniel immediately sees the interpretation and sees that it's actually rather worrying for Nebuchadnezzar, so he's not particularly keen to uh, tell him, but eventually he spits it out, and he identifies this tree that was chopped down as Nebuchadnezzar. Uh, he says uh, his greatness reaches to the heavens, and we'll read on from verse 24. If I can find it. That's right. <laughs> so it says, uh, This is the interpretation, O king. It's the decree of the Most High, which has come upon my Lord the King, that you shall be driven from among men, and your dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field. You shall be made to eat grass like an ox, and you shall be wet with the dew of heaven, and seven periods of time shall pass over you, till you know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men, and gives it to whom he will. And as it was commanded to leave the stump of the roots of the tree, your kingdom shall be confirmed to you from the time that you know that heaven rules. Therefore, O king, let my counsel be acceptable to you. Break off your sins by practising righteousness and your iniquities by showing mercy to the oppressed, that there may perhaps be a lengthening of your prosperity. All this came upon King Nebuchadnezzar. At the end of twelve months, he was walking on the roof of the royal palace of Babylon, And the king answered and said, Is not this great Babylon which I have built by my mighty power as a royal residence and for the glory of my majesty? While the words were still in the king's mouth, there fell a voice from heaven. O King Nebuchadnezzar, to you it is spoken. The kingdom has departed from you and you shall be driven from among men and your dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field. And you shall be made to eat grass like an ox and seven periods of time shall pass over you until you know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will. Immediately the word was fulfilled against Nebuchadnezzar. He was driven from among men and ate grass like an ox, and his body was wet with the dew of heaven, till his hair grew as long as eagle's feathers, and his nails were like bird's claws. At the end of the days, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted my eyes to heaven, and my reason returned to me. And I blessed the Most High, and praised and honoured him who lives forever. For his dominion is an everlasting dominion, and his kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing, and he does according to his will among the hosts of heaven, and among the inhabitants of the earth, and none can stay his hand, or say to him, What have you done? At the same time, my reason returned to me, and for the glory of my kingdom, my majesty and splendour returned to me. My counsellors and my lords sought me, and I was established in my kingdom and still more greatness was added to me. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol and honour the King of Heaven, for all his works are right and his ways are just, and those who walk in pride he is able to humble. So, why was Nebuchadnezzar humbled in such a dramatic way? To be humbled is to be brought low. In fact, we can't get any lower in comparison to God but often we compare ourselves to others and we end up feeling rather good about ourselves. So sometimes God needs to take us down even lower so that we can get a true perspective of ourselves. I remember when I started secondary school, 
Towards the end of primary school, you start to get a bit of a swagger as you realise that you're more intelligent and bigger and wiser than all these little kids. And, uh, and then on the first day of secondary school, you come face to knee with a sixth former and uh, you suddenly realise you know, that perhaps these things aren't entirely true. It's not just the sheer size of them, but it's the way they talk, the things they talk about, the freedom they have to walk in and out of school in lunchtime and um, <laughs> suddenly you feel rather small, thick, immature. You've not changed, but it's your sense of scale, your perspective. Nebuchadnezzar was as high as he could get by human standards. He ruled this enormous empire. Even Daniel calls him the king of kings, to whom the God of heaven has given the kingdom, the power and the might and the glory, and into whom, whose hand he is given wherever they dwell, the children of men, the beasts of the field and the birds of the heavens, making you rule over them all. But his head was as big to match, because he didn't see the greatness of God. So he was brought down to the lowest level, eating grass like the animals, so that he might see his lowly status before God. So are there any tips that we can take away to avoid such a painful humiliation in our own lives? I would suggest, in time on a preaching fashion, that there are in fact three. (laughs) C.S. Lewis says, as we heard recently, that pain is God's megaphone to rouse a deaf world. And sometimes that pain can be the pain of being humbled, of losing things that we take pride in. When God disciplines his children in this way, it's because he wants us to learn something. If we want to avoid humiliation, we need to listen, God, listen to God and learn the lessons when he's whispering in our pleasures rather than waiting for him to shout in our pain and humiliation as Nebuchadnezzar did. So, the first lesson is that all wisdom is God's. Nebuchadnezzar clearly hasn't learned this, though God's given him ample opportunity. If we go back to the start of his reign, some 30 or 40 years previously, we find a similar situation in which he has confusing and distressing dreams which he's unable to interpret. Being a king, he has many wise men, enchanters, magicians, sorcerers, astrologers, he even has these guys that Daniel calls Chaldeans, which as well as meaning uh, Babylonians, it also, to, uh, to guys from uh, Judah, it would have had a, another meaning of uh, those who were experts in dreams and they had these massive dream manuals detailing every dream that they'd ever encountered and, and what the likely events were that would happen after these dreams. So if, if anyone could interpret the dream, you'd expect that these guys could, but they, they really flounder. Incidentally, uh, the NASB includes conjurers in this list. I'm not exactly sure how they could help. I was uh, the first one that came to mind was Mark, because I think you used to do a bit of that, didn't you, Mark? Uh, I was just imagining Mark in front of Nebuchadnezzar as he says, oh, um, I'm having these really confusing, terrible dreams. Can you help me understand them? Uh, Pick a card, any card. (laughs) I'm not sure he would have been too impressed. The problem these guys have, though, is that Nebuchadnezzar won't even tell them the dream. Otherwise, they probably could have blagged it, which is what he really suspects. Uh, A further problem is that he threatens to tear them limb from limb and destroy their houses if they don't tell him the dream and the interpretation, so the pressure's on. Fortunately for them, and for Nebuchadnezzar, he also has Daniel, and Daniel knows that all wisdom comes from God. When we're introduced to him in chapter 1, verse 17, we read that God had given him wisdom and understanding in all dreams and visions. I wouldn't worry too much about that one, Joe. 
There are numerous references in the Bible to God being the one who puts wisdom in people. The most famous of these being Solomon. The proverbial wisdom of Solomon that we hear about was actually the wisdom of God. And in Proverbs 2, he encourages his son to cry out to God for insight. And he says in verse 6, For the Lord gives wisdom, and from his mouth come knowledge and understanding. So straight away on hearing the king's problem, Daniel books an appointment with him to give him the interpretation because he knows that God has it and he just has to ask. And the same is true for us. James 1 verse 5 says, If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. So we can be confident that God's given us wisdom above others to speak into situations, and then we can ask him to give it to us. James also says that the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere. So we don't go around like a bull in a china shop doling out our pearls of wisdom whether people want it or not. But when we do have the opportunity, as Daniel did, we can gently bring God's wisdom in our jobs, our families or with our friends. But let's remember where that wisdom comes from and acknowledge God. When Daniel receives the expected answer from God, he is quick to praise God. So if we read it from uh, chapter two, Daniel 2, verse 20... It says, Daniel answered and said, Blessed be the name of God forever and ever, to whom belong wisdom and might. He changes times and seasons. He removes kings and sets up kings. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to those who have understanding. He reveals deep and hidden things. He knows what is in the darkness and the light dwells with him. To you, O God of my fathers, I give thanks and praise for you have given me wisdom and might and have now made known to me what we asked of you for you have made known to us the king's matter. And he makes it clear to Nebuchadnezzar that uh, it's not just kind of when he's on his own that he praises God for wisdom. He does that uh, in public in front of Nebuchadnezzar as well because he doesn't want him to get the impression that Daniel's just some wise guy. So in, in verse 27, it says, um, No wise men, enchanters, magicians or astrologers can show the king the mystery that the king's asked. But there's a God in heaven who reveals mysteries and he's made known to, the, to King Nebuchadnezzar what will be in the latter days. And then if we go to verse 30, it says, But as for me, this mystery has been revealed to me, not because of any wisdom that I have more than all the living, but in order that the interpretation may be made known to the king, and that you may know the thoughts of your mind. So God gives wisdom so that others might know him, not so that we might look good. As Jeremiah says, Let not the wise man boast in his wisdom, let not the mighty man boast in his might, let not the rich man boast in his riches. But let him who boasts, boast in this, that he understands and knows me. We're called to display the abundant wisdom of God. As we go through the Bible, we see many men to whom some revelation of God's wisdom has been given. So we read in Job chapter 28 and verse 12. Where can wisdom be found? Where does understanding dwell? No mortal comprehends its worth. It cannot be found in the land of the living. 
and then it's, we skip on it, I think it's the next verse. It cannot be bought with the finest gold. And Job goes on, it's uh, a couple of verses later, I think. Um, God understands the way to it, and he alone knows where it dwells, for he views the end of the earth and sees everything under the heavens. Nebuchadnezzar has plenty of gold, but he doesn't understand how much he needs wisdom or where it comes from, or he would have changed his ways and sought God. And we see that by the end of his life, God is still calling him to break off from his sins and to practice righteousness, so he clearly just he hasn't got it. Whereas Paul was someone who did understand the scale of God's wisdom. He had an encounter with the risen Jesus that caused him to rethink everything he knew, to turn from his sin and follow God. And he was able to say in Romans 11 verse 33, Oh, the depths of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God, how unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. And ultimately, God's wisdom was displayed most powerfully in sending his son to die on the cross. And Paul talks about that eloquently in 1 Corinthians 1, verse 18. Sorry, Joe, I'm really making you, uh, <laughs> making you work hard. Turning to it yourself is always helpful, isn't it? For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to, who are, to us who are being saved it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the discerning, discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Hasn't, hasn't God made foolish the wisdom of the world? And then if we skip down to... I've lost my place, so I can't tell you. Uh-huh. If we skip down to verse 27, it says, But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption so that as it's written let the one who boasts boast in the Lord so what's this got to do with Nebuchadnezzar's humiliation well wisdom and humility are inextricably linked Proverbs has a lot to say about it it says he who trusts in himself is a fool but he who walks in wisdom is kept safe when pride comes then comes disgrace but with the humble is wisdom and the fear of the Lord is instruction in wisdom, and humility comes before honour. When Nebuchadnezzar finally gets a right view of himself, when he acknowledges God's supreme wisdom, then his honour is restored. In light of the supernatural revelation that Daniel brings, Nebuchadnezzar has to recognise that God is a revealer of mysteries, but clearly he's not recognised that God's the only source of wisdom, because by the time of the second dream, 30 or 40 years later, He's still consulting the other wise men before coming to Daniel. He had some serious anxieties about his reign as he was repeatedly dreaming about it. If Nebuchadnezzar was around today, he'd probably have gone to a psychiatrist or a counsellor. But actually, only God can give us the wisdom that puts our lives in perspective. We should go to him before all other sources. Friends, parents, doctors, they can all be helpful 
but we mustn't bypass God as our primary source of wisdom. Imagine you've been given a sat-nav for Christmas. I know they're pretty popular and I'm, I'm quite a fan of them, to be honest. Um, but some, some of you aren't. Um, let's just imagine that the sat-nav is not like some out there and that it never drives you into a river and that it keeps you perfectly up to date with all the road changes so you know it, it's right. Or if you don't have a sat-nav, just imagine it's your partner and uh, they've got a map and they, ne- they never get it wrong. Some of you that might be harder to imagine than others. But imagine you have a meeting somewhere in the middle of nowhere. You've no idea where you're going. You've never been there before. So you get into your car and you stick your sat-nav on and uh, off you go. But instead of looking at the sat-nav or the map or instead of listening to it or listening to your your partner's uh, kind words, you you decide, actually, I know where I'm going. I'll I'll just go off and I'll be fine. And um, after a while, you start to kind of uh, realise you, you, you're a little bit lost. So you think, right, I'll, I'll stop and ask someone the way. Now, I don't know uh, how many of you guys have done that. I've not done it in a while because my sat-nav is very reliable. But uh, when you do, sometimes you find, actually, yeah, they'll know what they're doing. Sometimes you'll find you've asked this person, you've realised almost straight away that they've no idea where you're going, but they'll still carry on regardless because they, they don't want to sort of lose face. So they keep directing you and they'll point in all these confusing ways and you'll have about 20 things to remember and you get back in the car completely clueless so you carry on and again a bit later you find you're lost and you ask someone else and it it just keeps going wrong and eventually you get to the point where you think well I suppose I could give this sat nav a go and of course when you do five minutes later there you are at your destination albeit two hours late but um that's a little bit like what it's, what it's like when we ignore the wisdom of God uh, in favour of others' advice. God's got the root plan to our lives and he always gives perfectly clear instructions. Even the wisest and best intentioned of friends is, is no match uh, for a God who knows our every move. The best that they could do is slow us down or confuse us and at worst they could send us in completely the wrong direction. read my stopwatch. <laughs> the second lesson that Nebuchadnezzar didn't learn is that all the glory belongs to God. At the end of Daniel 2, after Daniel interprets the first dream, Nebuchadnezzar appears to be acclaiming God as God of gods and Lord of kings. But it's obvious as the story goes on that he's not, in fact, acknowledging God as the one true God. He's just adding him to a list of all the other gods that he has even if he thinks that maybe he's superior to some of the others. But it's not enough to recognise that God's to be worshipped amongst other gods. He requires that we worship him alone and recognise that he's worthy of all worship and glory, not us, and that we change our lives accordingly. Jesus speaks about those who just pay lip service to God in Matthew 7 and verse 21. He says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. But he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. If you truly accept God's kingship, you'll do as he tells you. God instructs him through Daniel to break off from sinfulness, but he doesn't, and he ends up being humbled. From what we can gather of Nebuchadnezzar, he most likely sees himself as the highest of all. 
In fact, we've only got to look to the next chapter, to Daniel 3, to see him building a giant golden statue, probably of himself, and commanding people to worship. This doesn't sound like someone who understands where the glory is supposed to go. I say the statue is most likely of himself, because if we go back to the first dream he had, it involves this four-part statue that's made of, sort of four different metals, and Nebuchadnezzar is this head of gold at the top. What actually happens is that this statue gets smashed with a stone. You, many of you probably know this story. But uh, it, it, somewhere along there, Daniel kind of mentions that you know, Nebuchadnezzar is superior to the other kingdoms. and That's, that's what he latches onto. It's like, ignores the whole bit about the stone and he just says, ooh, I'm a head of gold. That's, um, that's pretty good. So, um, yeah, he, just, he fails to take on board that the statue is smashed by that rock that, that represents God's kingdom that then grows into this massive mountain. What God's trying to gently whisper is that his kingdom is the most glorious of all. But all Nebuchadnezzar, two years into his reign, and worrying about whether he'll be as great as his ancestors, all he hears is, I'm a head of gold. And off he goes to build a statue to celebrate his greatness. However you look at it, this guy is a big head. He takes the title of King of Kings, when actually that belongs to God. And in fact, to bring us back to his downfall, his very last words before his glory is taken, that we read earlier, perhaps the straw that broke the camel's back, he says, Is not this great Babylon, which I've built by my, majest- by my mighty power, as a royal residence for the glory of my majesty? Perhaps if he'd known his Bible, he might have remembered Deuteronomy 8 and verse 17. It says there, Beware lest you say in your heart, My power and the might of my hand have gotten me this wealth. You shall remember the Lord your God, for it is he who gives the power to get wealth. On a human level, he had every right to boast. From what we can tell from archaeology, he was constantly building. Babylon was uncovered at the the turn of the 20th century, and they found loads of bricks that actually had Nebuchadnezzar's name on them, because he was he had sort of overseen this building as king. He wasn't actually a very warlike king, uh, although we sometimes don't get that impression in the Bible, but actually he spent most of his reign just concentrating on making a name for himself by building. This pride and arrogance in what man can make goes back to, to the Tower of Babel, which was on the same site. They wanted to make a name for themselves as well. In fact, it may have been the very same tower that Nebuchadnezzar restored in his reign. Trying to achieve things is futile unless God's in it. Making a name for ourselves is not what we're called to do. Psalm 127 verse 1 says, Unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labour in vain. Unless the Lord watches over the city, the watchman stays awake in vain. Those houses that are not built on the solid foundation of obeying God's word will be washed away. The houses that Nebuchadnezzar built on sand are now either flattened or buried somewhere under the desert. God's house endures forever. Jesus warned his disciples about storing up treasure for themselves and told them that they should be rich towards God. He tells a parable of the rich fool who stores up all his crops and then sits back and gloats. Then God says, Fool, this night your soul is required of you and the things you've prepared, whose will they be? People are often so concerned with the legacy that they leave behind. They want to have their name carved into something or recorded in some history. But what use is that when you stand before the judge of the earth? 
he's interested in what we've done for his glory. Do we recognise that God deserves all the glory in our lives, not just for parts of it, but all of it? Everything we have, we've received from him. Do we worship other things in terms of the time and attention that we give to them? Is that worked out in what we do and how we treat others? Nebuchadnezzar's superiority complex causes him to oppress other people. A realistic assessment of ourselves will cause us to treat others with respect and justice. And are we trying to build things other than what God has called us to build? They might be good things. It might be career, family, sports achievements. It might even be church activities. But if God hasn't called us to do it, and if it's not his glory that we're seeking, then we're not building what God has called us to build. The third lesson is that all power is God's. It's not enough to recognise that God's quite powerful. We have to accept that he's sovereign over everything. In Jeremiah 27 and verse 5, God says, With my great power and outstretched arm, I made the earth and its people and the animals that are on it, and I give it to anyone I please. All power that's been given to kings comes from God. Romans 13 verse 1 says, There's no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. And Jesus recognises the same thing when he tells Pilate, You'd have no authority over me at all unless it had been given to you from above. What's more, God can take it away at any time. God revealed this to Nebuchadnezzar in his first dream when he saw the statue being smashed on the rock. And Daniel recognised this, as we read earlier. He said he changes times and seasons, he deposes kings and raises up others. Job 12.23 also says, He makes nations great and he destroys them. He enlarges nations and he leads them away. We only have to go to the next chapter again in Daniel to see that this is what happens to Babylon, just as God said it would in Habakkuk. Their kingdom comes to a swift end. Kingdoms will pass away, but God's kingdom will endure. I was chatting to uh, Nathan the other week about, uh, he was just mentioning, showing me some uh, videos uh, from a church in Hungary, in Budapest. There's a church called Faith Church. And now Hungary, for uh, a long time, was under the communist regime as part of this sort of old um, USSR uh, and this kind of thing. And they... Um, you may know that under, com- under the communist regime, the, the church was very persecuted and they had to meet in secret. This church started back then with only seven people and they were having to meet illegally uh, because the communist regime was just desperately trying to stamp them out. Now this church has more than 60,000 people meeting every week and the communist regime is long gone. God's kingdom outlasts all the earthly regimes no matter how permanent they might seem. Nebuchadnezzar thought that he was the most powerful being there was, in charge of his own destiny. Psalm 75, verse 4 to 7, could have been written for him. Glorious, oh, that's the wrong one. Let's try and get the right psalm. 
That's better. I say to the boastful, do not boast, and to the wicked, do not lift up your horn. Do not lift up your horn on high or speak with haughty neck. For not from the east or from the west and not from the wilderness comes lifting up. But it's God who executes judgment, putting down one and lifting up another. For in the hand of the Lord there is a cup with foaming wine well mixed and he pours out from it and all the wicked of the earth shall drain it down to the dregs. God eventually teaches Nebuchadnezzar through much suffering that the Most High is sovereign over the kingdom of men and gives them to whoever he wishes. Nebuchadnezzar learns from experience that God humbles the proud and he opposes the proud and gives grace to the humble, as it says in James. But it's not just kings that God's interested in. He's sovereign over every area. As we were hearing from Dan the other week, he's not a God of the gaps. Proverbs 16 and verse 33 says, The lot is cast into the lap, but it's every decision is from the Lord. Even those things that seem like chance, or those areas where we think that we're we're shaping our own destiny, are fully in God's control. To stick with the car analogy, I don't know if any of you watch The Simpsons, but there's a great bit in the opening credits where uh, you see Maggie Simpson sat at a steering wheel and uh, as she's swerving this way and right, this way and that, left and right, the car's swerving around the road, but then the camera pans out and you see her mother Marge sat at the actual steering wheel and Maggie's sat in her little car seat with a toy. And that's, you know, that's how it is with us that often we can, we can really feel like we're, we're in control of our own destiny and we can try and drive our own way, but we can't actually go any way that God isn't taking us. I think some people think that God's more like a driving instructor in a dual control car. So if things start to go a bit wrong, he jumps on and slams on the brakes. No, he's fully in control of every step. We can't go anywhere that isn't taking us. Psalm 139 and verse 16 says, All the days ordained for me were written in your book before one of them came to be. Now Nebuchadnezzar is commanded to acknowledge that heaven rules. Do we truly acknowledge God's sovereignty in every area of our lives? Or do we think that some other forces might be greater? Maybe sickness or money, governments, maybe even science. Uh, I was really encouraged to uh, read what Mark Smith had said uh, in the, the e-bike the other day. For those of you who don't know Mark and Leslie, uh, they've, um, they've got a, a son called Dan who's just uh, recently been diagnosed with a brain tumour and uh, they had some uh, tests back and they had some statistics about um, survival rates and this kind of thing. But uh, Mark very clearly said, we're not trusting in statistics, we're trusting God. What are we putting our security in? Money, status, intelligence, fitness, statistics. It might even just be, well, you know, I'll be fine because most people are. But God's able to take all of it away. But we know that he works for the good of those who love him. We put faith in his promises and the fact that he's able to carry all of them out in his sovereignty. All of these things are things that on this earth we can only scratch the surface of. But the more we understand them, the more they'll change our lives. And we know that in the end we'll have the full revelation of God's glory and we will sing, as the angels do in Revelation 7 verse 12, 
blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honour and power and might be to our God forever and ever. But let's not wait till then. Let's listen when God speaks gently to us and lift our eyes to see his greatness, his glory, his wisdom and his power and to understand our humble position before him. Then our lives will inevitably be changed and maybe we won't find one day, as Nebuchadnezzar did, that God's got his megaphone out and we're going to learn the hard way. Let's pray.